may he be glorified. Amen. Uh, the Spirit was using our sister Precious so much, I think she read a different text. But, it <laughs> but hey, the Spirit was moving. Amen. So I'm going to read uh, Luke 7, 36 through 50. And it says, then one of the Pharisees invited him to eat with him. He entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And the woman in the town, and a woman in the town, who was a sinner, found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with perfume. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him. She is a sinner. Jesus replied to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, say it, teacher. A creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and 150. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one he forgave more. And you have judged correctly, he told him. Turning to the woman, he said, Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. But she, with her tears, has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. As Precious communicated, we are walking through the parables in the book of Luke. And before I get into the message, what I want to do is kind of just give you an overview of Luke and then walk through kind of like the first 36 chapters, the first 35 chapters of what's happening and how we landed here where he begins to tell this parable. And, and one thing we must understand is that Luke is possibly a Gentile, right? A Gentile who wrote this book primarily to someone who himself was kind of seeking to understand what's happening. Like, who is this Jesus in this Christian movement that is happening? And this individual was Theopolis but also writing to aid an urban church movement in Jerusalem. So Luke, this Gentile, this outsider, is writing this book to help other outsiders understand this movement that has come out of Jerusalem. In this epicenter, you have a convergence of faith, you have a convergence of people groups, dignitaries attempting to be the voice of the people. Remember, before this, there's a silence where God does not speak through prophets for almost 400 years. So apparently, there are going to be people who are trying to jockey for the position to be the man or the woman in the city. Amen? And so what happens is, is all this time you have political revolt and you have spiritual uncertainty. I think we can relate to that a little bit. But all of a sudden, 
during this political revolt and this spiritual uncertainty, you have this carpenter from Nazareth. What good can come from Nazareth, right? Assumed to be unlearned, disassociated from religious sects, he enters the scene bringing great disruption. Now imagine today in, in America, in the midst of national polarization, political authority is abusive, religious leaders are doing what's beneficial for them, and the social outsider named Luke, this random gentleman named Luke, writes a book to other outsiders in Atlanta who are attempting to make sense of this brother from English Avenue, our bankhead named Jesus, who never graduated from college, he has no association with Democrats, Republicans, Black Lives Matters, Baptists, Catholics, Alphas, Kappas, Deltas, Jack and Jill. Some of y'all bougie folks, y'all know what Jack and Jill is, no? All right. But this is an unassuming brother with no resume. He brings teaching that's transformative and life-changing philosophies. And he's causing big disruption. But he, does, doesn't, he doesn't just bring disruption, he brings challenges to the systems and the beliefs that people hold on to tightly. But it's very important that we go through this parable of Luke, that we understand that Luke is a Gentile, because he writes a lot about Jesus' interactions with Gentiles, people who are outsiders, right? And his compassion and his interactions with the outcast. One of my favorite people in history, George Washington Carver, has this quote. He says, and he talked about religion, and one of his statements about those who are religious, he says, how far you go in life depends on your being tender with the young, compassionate with the aged, sympathetic with the striving, and tolerant of the weak and strong. Because someday in your life, you will have been all of these. Theologian Dr. Thomas Constable says, that Luke writes a gospel for the underdog. No other gospel presents Jesus as having dinner with someone as often as Luke does. So it's important that we understand that Luke, this outsider, is writing about other, uh, uh, another outsider to other outsiders, saying, like, we should be able to understand what it means to be ostracized and marginalized in a context. And this man is showing compassion to these people. And so at the first part of uh, uh, Luke chapter 7, we see that Jesus shows compassion not only to the Gentile, but he shows compassion to a widow, and he shows compassion to a sinner, while all being questioned by the establishment. In verses 1 through 10, Jesus heals the servant of a centurion, a man who had great authority, but yet he himself was an outsider of the religious establishment. And he displayed great faith. And Jesus healed his servant, the centurion's servant, because of the faith that this non-Jewish individual had. Yet the religious leaders continued to question Jesus' motives. In 11 through 17, we see that Jesus heals the widow's son. Jesus is going about his business as he often does, and he witnesses that this woman is grieving the loss of her son, her only child. And he stops and he has compassion that this woman has lost her son and he heals him and he raises from the dead. 
And once he does that, it says that the people said in 16, then fear came over everyone and they glorified God saying, a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. This report about him went through Judea and all the vicinity. An important thing to understand is that Jesus didn't only bring disruption, but he was willing to be disrupted as well for the benefit of other people. And how often do we see Jesus stopping on his way to do business to help and serve other people? He is not in his own time, amen? And so as we look at our own schedules and our own life, let's evaluate who do we live for? Who, 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 who is our time for? In verse 18 through 35, we see that Jesus confirms his identity. As word is spreading around about Jesus and the work that he's doing, John the Baptist is curious to, is this the one whom I've paved the way for? He wants to make sure that his work is not in vain. And so he sends his disciples to inquire, and Jesus basically tells John's disciples, like, show enough, I'm the one. I'm the one that you're looking for. But Jesus doesn't just affirm his identity. What he does is he recognizes that John the Baptist himself is also considered an outsider. And so just not worrying about his own name and platform, he recognizes that those associated with him are going to be marginalized themselves. And so he affirms John. And so before the crowd, what he does is he affirms John's ministry. And this is what great leaders do. They don't just build their own platform and status. They affirm other people as well. And those who are familiar with John's teaching as Jesus is affirming John the Baptist are praising God because they're like, great, because we got baptized and we want to make sure that our following of John didn't, wasn't a waste of time. And, but all the, long, all the while, just as Jesus is healing the centurion, as he's healing the widow, as he's affirming John the Baptist, the establishment, those in power, are questioning his motives. They say, since, in verse 30 it says, but since the Pharisees and the experts in the law had not been baptized in him, they rejected the plan of God for themselves. They were intellectual people. They were experts in the law. And they allowed their resume and their intellect to create an obstacle on their way to the truth. I have many friends who continue to seek degrees and philosophies, and the more they obtain worldly knowledge, the further they become from the truth of God. There's a famous quote, a person will never believe what their paycheck, paycheck will not allow them to. And when you pursue a lie, you got to either repent and acknowledge your wayward path, or you got to go all the way with it. It was Samuel L. Jackson in a movie, I think it was 187, that says, if you're going to be stupid, be all the way stupid. Because no one likes half stupid. It does no benefit for anyone. And that's what the Pharisees decided. And Jesus rebukes them. He says, this generation is unstable and illogical. He says, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a lament, but you did not cry. He said, John didn't eat. He didn't come drinking and you said he had a demon. But yet I eat and drink and you call me a glutton and a drunkard. And because I hang with sinners. He says, basically, there's a prisoner dilemma here. I can't win. You've created 
a structure where nobody wins outside of your theologies and your, and your worldviews. And then in 36 it says, then one of the Pharisees invited him to have dinner. And I'm not going to read it all over again, but we just read it. And, and it, one of the interesting things is when we read this parable, in, 40, in verse 41 it says, since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So which one of them will love him more? And Simon answers, I suppose the one he forgave more. I think we all recognize that sin is sin, right? Amen? And that the wages of sin is death, singular sin. It doesn't matter if you commit one sin or a hundred sins. The wages of sin is death. And so no matter the total tally of your sins, a person is separated from God the moment they violate that covenant relationship with God. But the difference between the Pharisee and the woman that Jesus is speaking of in this particular parable is that the sinner knows their wicked disposition. The Pharisee carries an appearance of righteousness, but their righteousness is self-serving, it's tyrannical, it's stoic, and it's without compassion. And how can you be righteous when your righteousness is detached from the righteous one himself? Like we can talk about drug addiction in our country and we talk about opioids and we can talk about crack and, and it's, it's amusing to me throughout history we've criminalized people who did crack and now that there's an opioid addiction we try to find that, oh, you know what, these folks need treatment now. And it's, and it's because how they carry themselves. It's, it's all about the marketing of the sin, amen? In the suburbs, you can have drug addiction but you have the veneer to cover it up, to make it look good. You still have a nice home. You still have private schools to go to. All the while, you are doped out. But in, in a hood, you, you don't hide it as well. The neighborhoods are blighted. They're probably selling drugs on the corner. People see the transaction. There's homelessness. There's blightedness. The polished veneer can oftentimes create a false sensibility or a false sense of stableness in people who know how to hide their predilections. But the beautiful thing about when someone is forgiven in the hood, oftentimes when they experience tra the, the great transformation, the great gratitude is displayed in the most extreme ways. Amen? I have an older brother who's, who, who, who had a, a hard time with drug uh, uh, addiction. Many years, sleeping on railroad tracks. But when the Lord saved him, you would find this man in the whitest of churches. Now, this brother is 6'1", huge, whole black family, only black man in his all-white church in the country, in the front of the altar, worshiping loud as all get out. He does not care because he recognizes the great work that God has done in his life. He didn't care about politics. He didn't care about the, the color, the culture. All he cared about is that he was once lost and now he is found. And what Jesus is doing in this text, in this parable, is he's saying, I am creating an apologetic for this woman's behavior. He's saying, look, this woman understands the gravity of her sin. She knows who I am and therefore she is responding in the proper way. However, my good, educated, polished, posh, Pharisee friends. He says, woe to you who are rich, for you have received your comforts. Woe to you who are now full, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are now laughing, 
for you will mourn and weep. This is just the sermon previously in chapter 6. He just preached this. And you may call this woman a sinner, but I know her as a saint. And although you look good and your veneer and your outward posture is all polished, inside you are a rotting corpse. And I pray, church, that we don't just put on a veneer of, of, of comfort, but that we understand how to show the proper disposition of humble, broken people. Let's not overlook the parable that Jesus uses. He, he talks about debt forgiveness. And this is the second time in two chapters that he talks about debt forgiveness. Now remember, he's preaching compassion, and Luke is pulling out this parable because he recognizes the, the oppression and the marginalizing, the marginalizing that's happening in the context of which he's operating. He says, look, he's hanging out with poor folks, tax collectors, financiers, people who have authority, and Jesus has their ear. And he's saying this because he's trying to give these folks a tangible of expression of what forgiveness looks like. Like, we can talk about forgiveness, but what is true forgiveness when we flesh it out in our daily lives? I guarantee you, if Sally Mae or Navient or the Department of Education calls you guy right now and, 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 and forgave loans, you'd be shouting, you would break a, a whole lot of alabaster boxes. But what we have here is we have three different types of guests. As Jesus is interacting with the people in the church, we have three different types of guests. We have the Pharisee, we have the sinner, as she's called, but we will, I will call her the forgiven one. And then we have a third guest I'll, I'll get to later. The Pharisee, oftentimes, now, in our church context, Pharisees often get bad raps, and, and they should. And oftentimes when we look at Pharisees, we say, oh, never, we, we would never, we can't associate, I'll never be a Pharisee. I, I disassociate with that person altogether. But let's, let's have a little grace with the Pharisees and, and understand the context in which they're living, right? The Pharisees were a group of people who saw dysfunction in their society, and they decided to bring structure to the people. Even though their motives may not have been pure, and they did not know the Lord or the truth. But think about this in the sense of, I don't know what kind of communities you grew up in, but I lived in areas where there was gangs, and gangs weren't always groups of people who just wanted to kill folks over color. Gangs started off as service organizations, people who were trying to do good work and service in communities. But then what would happen is, is their communities would dry up in resources, and then other organizations would be like, no, let's fight. They would fight and, and, and argue over the resources and how they would serve communities, and then eventually drugs entered the, the, the picture, and now they forget the service, and now it's all about drugs and territory. And in the same sense, what we have is these religious folks who are trying to speak for God, even though he's silent, and he says, I'm sending the Messiah, and you have this gang territory, this, this gang feud that's happening over all these different religious sects. And they're saying, really, we just need to create some sort of structure. And think about Jesus entering into the picture. You have a, a set of norms and a way of which you're going to live, and Jesus brings great disruption to that. The customs you knew are now revamped. The laws you followed are now fulfilled. The teachings you had are now updated. The way you lived is now challenged, and the power you had is now stripped away. Now, I know a lot of us feel like 
we're not associated with Pharisees, but just imagine all of those things happening to you, you would have a response. How often, how easy do you embrace change? And we don't need a great imagination to see that in this country. Because in the last, we can even say decades, but especially in the last four to ten years, we can see how this operated, has operated, how this country has operated in a fear of cultural change. And Jesus enters the picture, and he just isn't eradicating sin, but he's also disrupting culture and lifestyles. Business is done differently. Relationships are done differently. Politics should be done differently. Civic engagement is done differently. The goal of disruption is to take you to a decision-making process to being a disciple. But But the Pharisees were disrupted and then they stayed at disturbed. And we see here that the Pharisees practice a fraudulent hospitality. When they invite Jesus into their house, they had no real interest in in bringing dignity to the interaction. Their interaction was fraudulent and self-serving. And if we're honest, we all know the art of fraudulent hospitality. It's called small talk. you know, you, you, you walking through a grocery store and you ain't seen somebody you ain't seen in about six months to a year. And it's like, hey, how you doing? And you get to talking about your kids and you know you don't really care. And you ask shallow questions and you're really just like, I can't wait to just leave this situation. And it may not be harmful and it, it may not be looking to demoralize the person, but some of us are really good at small talk. But at the end of the day, there's no real authentic intimacy you're trying to get in that interaction. You're just passing time in order to be like, okay, I'll talk to you later. But just imagine taking that a step lower. Imagine not only not caring for the interaction, but not caring for the individual. And that's what the Pharisees are doing. It's not, it's not that they just don't care for Jesus, the, the interaction. They don't care for Jesus, and this interaction is not only distasteful for them, but it's hoping to bring a sort of demise. They want to keep Jesus in their proximity to either witness his demise or to expose him as a fraud. And Jesus rebukes the Pharisees and says to them, yeah, you you invited me in your home, but you were suspicious of me. You invited me in your home, but you regarded your possessions over me. You invited me in your home, but you were cold and you were distant. You invited me in your home, but you only brought me to investigate me and to indict me. You, you invited me, but you, you were hoping for my demise. Woe to us who carry this, this type of hospitality when we are interacting with brothers and sisters in the faith. Do you really care to get to know people or are you just passing the time? Do you regard your possessions over a brother or sister? Are you handling interactions with suspicion? Are you cold and distant? Are you, do you have people in your proximity only to investigate or to indict them? Are you hoping for a brother or sister's demise? And I know in this tension in which this particular church lives in, we have brothers and sisters who have decided to do other work. And it's so easy to hope for the demise of people. But I hope and pray that we would see this as a Paul and Barnabas situation. 
that, Lord, you know what? Though we are not on the same team anymore, we're still on the same team. And bless the work that they are doing, whatever it may be. And I pray that they be successful. I pray that more souls be saved. I pray that they grow in fellowship. And I pray that they hope the same thing for us. Is that the type of hospitality that we're presenting? The Pharisees had a fraudulent posture. Rather than acknowledging their own lack of compassion and hospitality, they'd rather demean the name of Jesus. Well, if he was a prophet, he would. Well, if he was really a man of God, if you were really a good pastor, you would. Well, what about you? What, what, what about the things that you could work on? What are some of the things that you are struggling with? How could you have made the situation better? Rather than deal with your own sin and insecurities, we project it on someone else. Theologian Warren Worsby says, people who want to avoid the truth about themselves can always find something in the preacher to criticize. People who want to avoid the truth about themselves can always find something in the preacher to criticize. Here are the attributes of the Pharisees. They want control during disruption. They choose suspicion over charity. They deflect rather than deal with their own sins. They know how to manipulate truth and rules for their own benefit. They're wise. They're cunning. They know the latest books. They know the latest pastors. They're intoxicated with information, but do they have wisdom? But in verse 35, it says, yet wisdom is vindicated by her children. Amen. Now let's talk about the second guest, the sinner who is forgiven. If we understand the context of Pharisee is hosting a dinner with Jesus, and it is, it is said that this woman is known to be a prostitute. So she knows her lifestyle is not lined up with the Pharisees, but yet and still she's like, you know what, I am going to this party. Her faith and her courage to meet Jesus on enemy territory is to be admired. She is known as a sinner, and despite her reputation, she crashes the dinner party to pay homage and respect to her Lord. I know what they say about me, but I have to meet this Jesus. She was not concerned about how others viewed her or what they would think about her. She was only concerned about the interaction between her and her Savior. And what does that mean to us? No matter the environment or the company we keep, we should never be intimidated to honor our Lord. And when we don't, and when we do, we don't just give shallow honor. This woman doesn't just enter the party and just say, Yo, yeah, I'm, just, I'm just here to observe. I'm just here to kind of like give a, a, a shallow amen. She pours it out. She embarrasses herself to give Jesus honor and glory. Amen. I know we've been in situations where people talk bad about the church and you like, oh, snap, I'm He's talking about me, and you're like, yo, show what you think. I mean, church, you know, it's cool, you know, I'll be, you know. I mean, some of the church I don't really rock with. Like, no. Show what do you believe? I believe the church is the bride of Christ, and he's redeemed us. And though we're a mess, it is the means by which salvation is going to reach the ends of this earth. And I am proud to be a member of a broken family. Amen. She's not only willing to be seen in the shadows and the quiet, but she is willing to fellowship with Jesus in the public spaces, and Jesus is willing to fellowship with her. And when the Pharisees operated out of conniving uh, motives and whatnot, this woman 
she shows true appreciation. Oftentimes we see this where uh, Nicodemus, you know, he's ashamed because his public reputation to have a, a conversation with Jesus. So it says he meets him at night. But here's the other thing. Let's understand the significance of, of washing feet. Now, obviously we know this is a way to pay honor and respect and to show homage. But if we can just get real practical for just a second, they didn't have Timberlands and, and Nikes back in the day. And guess what? They walked everywhere. So they had some nasty feet, amen? And I, I, I've been doing a lot of running recently, and, and I think my feet are beautiful. I mean... My mom is, she over here trying to clown. But the, the, when you start running a lot, you start to develop like the black toe, the black toenail. And I, I can only imagine somebody with some nasty toes walking into the church. And the way that we pay homage is to wash their feet and to kiss their feet and to use my beautiful long locks to wipe their feet off. That is putting that person above me showing reverence in a way that is saying, you know what, despite your flaws, you deserve all pray, all uh, uh, reverence and honor. When I first met my wife in college, we were part of a leadership cohort for a summer, and uh, she was a leader in her room, and, and uh, I remember they were like, hey, this girl, Patrice, she's up there washing the feet of all the young ladies as part of the ministry. And I was thinking, like, snap, like, that's beautiful. Like, I got to get to know this young lady. <laughs> a couple months later, you know what your boy did. So anyway, lock that thing down. But for her to do that was a demonstration of great service and humility and to be a leader and say, I am going to wash the feet of the women that I'm discipling is amazing to me. And though we may not wash actual feet, but how do we pay homage to those who we revere? How do we serve? How do we humble ourselves? How do we genuflect? How do we get down and say, I appreciate you in a way that I probably haven't demonstrated or told you before? The attributes of the forgiven, they know their past, but they're not haunted by it. They know nothing belongs to them, and all belongs to the Lord, and he shall be offered everything. They are forever indebted to the forgiver. They humble themselves and they exalt the forgiver. They believe that hospitality should be a joy and not an obstacle. They don't love disruption, but when disruption occurs, we understand that it's a part of life and we trust the Lord to bring us through it. And Jesus does a beautiful thing. Amongst the judgment and amidst all the, 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 the calling out of who, who, who she is and the, if Jesus would have known, if he was a prophet, he would know she's this type of woman. Jesus looks at her and once again, like he did with John the Baptist, he affirms her in public amongst other people. He says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. We see the importance of public affirmation for someone whose reputation was sullied. And Jesus does this often and is most often with people who are settled on the margins of society. 
people who are looked at as outcasts, Jesus often affirms these people. And I challenge you and I pray that we do the same thing. You are forgiven because of your faith. Go in peace. It is a testament to those who are willing to show their brokenness are most likely to break their alabaster box and pour it all out before Jesus. While the rich and the influential are concerned about their status and their reputation. But there is a third guest, amen. In verse 49, it says, Those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this man who even forgives sins? I imagine that most of us in here aren't necessarily asking that question. But let me answer it anyway. He is the forgiver of sins. He is the Lord who died for the benefit of the broken, the lost, and the wanderer. The one who is rich and the one who is poor. The one who has the veneer and the one who is blighted. He is a friend to the sinner. He welcomes the sinner into fellowship. No misdeed is too great for him to to forgive. Amen. I don't care what your reputation is. I don't care what they say about you. You can come and have fellowship with Jesus. He is the way, the truth, the light. His wisdom is to be found. There is none like him. Amen. And though we are messy and that we are complicated and our church is broken and we and we have faults and we have flaws, we carry his spirit in earthen vessels. And yet his wisdom will be vindicated by his children. Amen. So as I as I as I as I close, I just challenge us. What does it mean to be people who are hospitable? What does it mean to be people who pour it all out? We have some very educated people in this room, people who have lots of resume, lots on their resume, a great CV, many degrees. But don't let that become an obstacle for how you love and how you serve, not only other people, but most importantly, who you are to the Lord. Amen? Let your hospitality not be fraudulent. Let your hospitality be self-sacrificing. Pour it all out to the Lord. Understand that all that you have been given belongs to Jesus. He is to be glorified with all he has given us, and we are his children, and he will be vindicated through his wisdom. Let me pray. Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information about Blueprint Church, visit us online at blueprintchurch.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Blueprint Church. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Sunday.